I love the idea of a manifesto, you know, a bold, ambitious statement, putting it out there, pinning your colours to the mast. Uh, truly great manifestos uh, declare a new pathway, a new way of life, a new deal. Uh, some of the great manifestos that you may know of, or perhaps you've remembered part of them, you, some people memorise, for example, parts of the Magna Carta or the US Declaration of Independence, and perhaps, depending on your bent, uh, Marx's Communist Manifesto. Uh, I think Theresa May's uh, Conservative Manifesto of a few months ago is sort of going to be parked on the sidelines, however. But the greatest manifesto, I think, is surely Jesus' Sermon on the Mount. After Jesus has announced the arrival of the Kingdom of Heaven in Matthew 4, he began to preach to his disciples in Matthew chapters 5 through 7. His message, the famous Sermon on the Mount, is therefore, I think, something of a kingdom manifesto. And his message so far has been that the kingdom is all of grace. That's because no one deserves it. No one can earn it. That would require, according to Jesus, a righteousness that surpassed even the standard of the Pharisees, a standard, by the way, which they couldn't even keep. No, no, the kingdom of heaven is the place where the poor in spirit, those who know that they are spiritually bankrupt, are blessed. It's the place where those who hunger and thirst for righteousness are filled is the place where the merciful receive mercy. No, <laughs> rule-keeping is not the way into the kingdom. The mercy of God on those who know they need it is what assures us of our place. It is all of grace. And so last week, I, I wanted to say that any love of money would be contrary to this fundamental character of the kingdom. I didn't mean to suggest, I did not mean to suggest that if we are not generous with our money, then our salvation is at risk. Okay, I apologize if I didn't make that clear enough last week. My point is, is that if we are not gracious and generous with all that God has entrusted to us, then we are living in a way which is contrary to the ethic of grace which characterizes God's kingdom. What we do or don't do with our money doesn't get us in or out of the kingdom. It doesn't save us. Much more importantly here, though, Jesus is addressing our hearts. When there really are only two kinds of treasures, either earthly or heavenly, Jesus wants to draw our hearts to treasure, to delight, to rejoice in God himself. Just as an adopted orphan's greatest delight is not a kitchen full of food, but it's actually their new parents. So also our greatest delight is our Heavenly Father himself. And so to the pivot at the centre of this unit in uh, Jesus' uh, Sermon on the Mount, addressing the priority of our hearts is, is actually verse 24, which we read just a few moments ago. No one can serve two masters. Either you'll hate the one and love the other, or you will be devoted to the one and despise the other. You cannot serve both God and money. 
And that word money there, it's actually a, it's an Aramaic word, mammon. If you're a King James reader, you would have seen it in your text. It doesn't just mean cold, hard cash, uh, you know, that stuff that we used to have in our society. What it means is all of the wealth and all of the things and all of the stuff that money can buy. And so there are these two contrasts, uh, contrasting opposites there. Uh, serve God or serve mammon, but you can't have both. Okay? The key is to hear both sides of what Jesus is saying here. Right? Negatively, we don't want to make stuff our treasure. And positively, on the other hand, God is our treasure. We ought to treasure him. He is our delight. He is our heavenly treasure. And this same double-edged command, if I may call it that, is what Jesus is elaborating upon in the focus of our passage this week. Uh, so we're alerted to this at the beginning of verse 25. Therefore, I tell you, don't be worried and so forth. Off he goes. The key there, verse 25 begins with therefore, and all of the smart readers know, and probably anyone who was in my English class back in high school, You've always got to ask, what's the therefore, therefore? Right? It's because of what Jesus has said in verse 24 about not serving God and money, both. He tells us this in verse 25. This is the application of the principles that Jesus has established in verses 19 through 24. And so what is his point? At first, it seems a simple point. Uh, you know, therefore, don't worry. But since we know that Jesus is applying this double-edged principle, God or mammon, we're alert to the fact that there is actually a positive side of the same coin uh, to do with worry. But for now, you could be thought, well, you know, rightly, it really is just saying, don't, just don't worry. I mean, Jesus gives us this command five times throughout the passage tonight. Did you notice that? Do not worry about your life, verse 25. Can any one of you by worrying add a single hour to their life, verse 27. Why do you worry about clothes, verse 28. So do not worry, verse 31 and verse 34, where we finish. Therefore, do not worry about tomorrow, five times. Chances are, if you weren't worried about anything before you came here tonight, you probably are now. You've started worrying. I mean, that's how it works, isn't it? Right? As soon as you say, don't worry, it goes, oh, no, my goodness, I'm worried about something. Anxiety does rise up and grip our hearts. But Jesus has something far more positive to say in just a few moments. But what's happening is he's saying, look, this worry functions as a symptom a warning sign of a deeper issue that mammon is competing with God. And so our message today aims to show us what it looks like to actually leave worry, leave behind the worry about things and stuff, and instead be captivated by God our Heavenly Father. Just as worry and mammon are paired together. So are trust and God in this passage. Let's see if we can follow Jesus' logic. That's the headline. First up, so verses 25 through 27, Jesus says that life is greater than that which sustains it. Uh, so verse 25, Therefore I tell you, 
Do not worry about your life, what you will eat or drink, or about your body, what you will wear. Is not life more than food, and the body more than clothes? Look at the birds of the air. They do not sow or reap or store away in barns, and yet your heavenly Father feeds them. Are you not much more valuable than they? Can any one of you, by worrying, add a single hour to your life? When Jesus uh, uses this word life, when do not worry about your life, he's actually chosen to use a very specific word. It's, it's the word that actually refers to our inner life, uh, our human soul. It's the root word that we get the word psyche uh, from, our mind. And, it, and it's this immaterial self which is contrasted with the physical things that sustain that self, you know, food and drink and clothes. So don't worry about sustaining your soul with food and drink and all the other stuff is where Jesus begins here. Why not? Well, verse 26, Jesus uses now a fairly typical Jewish device where he reasons from the lesser to the greater. He says, look at the birds of the air. They don't preoccupy themselves with crops and farming and barns like we do, and yet... Our Heavenly Father feeds them. So since we are more valuable to God than birds, we should depend upon him for our sustenance. So birds are lesser, we are greater, we should learn the lesson from their experience. And so Jesus' point here is that we don't need to preoccupy ourselves to utterly spend all of our energies on whatever our equivalent is of farming and storing food for the future, as if it all depended upon us. Okay, when, our, when our worries rise in this way, the symptoms reveal we've lost our focus on our Heavenly Father and we think it all hinges upon ourselves. Uh, that word worry uh, bears a little bit of investigation. Throughout the passage, this word is, is really talking about having our mind divided up into different parts. Our thinking is fractured. Um, it's, it's all over the place. Uh, part of our mind is trusting God, but there's another part that's focusing entirely uh, upon our farming and ourselves and our, and our concerns. And that's the root of all of this worrying. The symptoms of worry reveal that we think we're entirely responsible for the outcome. But on the other hand, the positive side of this same issue is God. Who is God in the midst of our need for sustenance? Of course, we need food and drink and clothing, yes, but who is God? Well, according to the text, He is our Heavenly Father, as Jesus says, verse 26. He is the Father of our souls. He is the giver and the sustainer of life. When anxiety rises, the thing to do is remember who God is, remember His character. His nature, his love, his absolute power. Life, all of our lives, are in his fatherly care. And all of our worrying cannot extend the duration of our lives, but it can turn us to prayer. We read Philippians 4 a little earlier. Instead of being anxious, 
No matter whatever our situation may be, in prayer and petition, we present our requests to God. And the outcome of this dependence upon God is that his peace, far above and beyond any human understanding, his peace will guard our hearts and minds in Christ Jesus. Now, it is true that we don't always have all of the answers. We don't know why God sometimes allows life to be cut short. But we can trust him as our Heavenly Father. Jesus is not saying that it's wrong to be concerned or anxious for our kids or for our families or for people whom we love. Jesus is instead calling us to entrust ourselves to God who loves us, who is the author, the protector of our lives. The flip side, if you like, of that self-concerned double-mindedness is faith in our Father expressed in prayer. And it's actually that trust which is the characteristic of life in the kingdom of heaven. In the manifesto, this basic dependence upon God is what Jesus is wanting to cultivate in us here. So I don't think Jesus is saying in this passage that all worrying is wrong. Okay, parents may have a rightful concern for our children. And if you've seen some of my kids, you will get that, right? Okay. Exams may rightly stress us, actually, so that we will prepare well for them. Okay? Life in the kingdom is not necessarily some carefree magic carpet ride. No, Jesus' point here is when we worry... We recognize that as a symptom of having invested ourselves in mammon, in stuff. And just to be really clear, the Bible here is not telling us, look, just totally give up on work, right? Don't bother with providing food for yourself or for your family. That's not what the Bible means at all. Uh, elsewhere in the New Testament, Paul writes this to the Thessalonians. You'll probably know it. Paul says, we worked night and day laboring and toiling so that we would not be a burden to any of you. We did this not because we do not have the right to such help, but in order to offer ourselves as a model for you to imitate. For even when we were with you, we gave you this rule, the one who is unwilling to work shall not eat. So Jesus is not against work or farming, or sustaining ourselves with food and drink. That's not the point. The birds still have to get up early to catch the worm, right? Jesus is saying, no, no, I want you to treasure God above the basic sustenance of your soul. Put your hope entirely in God. Instead of being double-minded, have an undivided heart for God. Serve him alone. This kingdom life of which Jesus speaks rests on our Heavenly Father, on who he is. He is our provider and our sustainer. So that's the, that's the key part, if you wish, of Jesus' manifesto. It's his first application, Jesus' first application of that principle that you can't serve both God and mammon. He has a second, uh, and it's similar but with a little different emphasis. So we're now at verse 28, if you're following on in your Bibles, um, where Jesus says, 
And why do you worry about clothes? See how the flowers of the field grow. They do not labour or spin. Yet I tell you that not even Solomon in all his splendour was dressed like one of these. If that is how God clothes the grass of the field, which is here today and tomorrow is thrown into the fire, will he not much more clothe you, you of little faith? So Jesus' second warning here is fairly similar to the first, but this time the emphasis is actually on the externals of life. Why worry about outward appearances? Uh, there's another argument here from the lesser to the greater, same style of thing. Jesus says, look, look at the flowers of the field, much more beautiful than Solomon could ever have you know, imagined dressing himself. And so since we are more valuable than wildflowers, we should depend upon God for our appearance. Wildflowers lesser, we're greater, learn from the experience. So it's a similar illustration, but we're talking now about appearance. Sometimes we like to think that we're not really concerned with how we look. I'm sure there are some people who maybe actually care a lot about clothes, and that's fine. And some of us pride ourselves on not dressing to impress. I'm in that camp, in case you haven't noticed. But hardly any of us take no care for our reputation, for our appearance as people see us what others think, their opinions, their evaluation of us. But because we're serving God alone, because we're in his kingdom, we're not storing up treasures on earth, so we are free from playing the appearances game. The problem underlying these worries, it's revealed to us at the end of verse 30. Will not God clothe you much more you of little faith. Our little faith is expressed in our anxiety about our appearance, what other people think of us, our reputation, our clothing, just what we look like plainly. But in the kingdom, because we serve God alone, because we're not trying to stash away treasure here and now, we actually entrust ourselves to God for his approval and his alone. Have you ever played the game where you identify who's in your grandstand? Do you know what I mean? Do you know that one? Uh, if you view yourself as a player on the field, on the soccer field of life, there are usually people that we hope are watching us, people in the grandstand. Um, we hope that they notice what we do, hope that they will be impressed with what we do. Do you know who's in your grandstand for some of us, we have installed front and centre in that grandstand our human fathers, whether they be living or not. Uh, perhaps there are others whose opinion that you value highly, very cool people, respected elders, and some heavy hitters in some form or other. Um, if you've ever been to a school reunion, you might realise that actually your classmates are right there, stacked up high in the grandstand. All of those ones that said, you know what, he'll never amount to anything. Well, instead of worrying about the grandstand, Jesus reminds us to put our little faith in God, our Father. He will clothe us 
with a glory that is far beyond any wildflowers, far more beautiful. Jesus doesn't say it specifically here. Paul will say it later. God clothes us with the glory of Jesus himself. So Jesus is applying that principle of serving God alone and not mammon as well. And now actually when we get to verses 31 to the end, he draws it together, kind of a conclusion. Uh, so do not worry saying what shall we eat or what shall we drink or what shall we wear for the pagans run after all these things and your heavenly father knows that you need them. But seek first his kingdom and his righteousness, and all these things will be given to you as well. So Jesus sums up all of the negative don't worry arguments in verses 31 and 32, and then he steps to the positive. Here's what to do in verse 33. Verse 31 32, don't be like the pagans. Pagans characteristically don't trust God. Don't be like that. They must run after those things, for it's all they've got. No, who is God in all of this? He is our heavenly Father who knows exactly what we need. And I wonder, do you know God as your heavenly Father? That you would trust yourself to him? He's not necessarily like earthly fathers. Some of us, um, you know, have fathers that might have reflected the character of God in some small way, and we're glad for that. But sometimes, I don't know if fatherhood has a brand, but the grand's got a problem sometimes, and it really needs, well, I don't know, uh, reinventing or something, redeeming from all of the disappointments and perhaps all of the prejudices that we might have when it comes to fathers and fatherhood. Do you know that God is truly your father? He is your father in a way that no human could ever be. He loves you. He loves us absolutely unconditionally. He loves us intimately. He cares about us. He protects us. He sustains us. He provides for us. He wants our best when we don't even know what best is. He already knows our needs. He is Father such that he absorbs our rebellion into his grace. God is our Father. And given that we have such a heavenly Father, of course we want to serve him alone. We want to seek his kingdom above all other things. To, to seek his kingdom really means to, to embrace his rule. We, we yearn for, we desire, we strive for God's rule. The, the manifesto applied and lived out. We, we choose now to live his way. We strive for his righteousness as a priority. Now righteousness is not so much in the sense of legal justification, but righteousness in the Old Testament sense of a way of life. The practicalities of living. You see, we, we rightly express our belonging by living the kingdom values. And because God is our Heavenly Father, He provides all that we need, not only our inner sustenance, but our external appearances as well. 
You know, over the centuries, there are many ways in which faithful Christians have tried to put that mindset into practice. Okay, we, we, we know now what it looks like, but how do we actually become that? How do you do it? There are many helpful disciplines and tools that are available to us, but I want to tell you about the power of a Bible reading and prayer habit. I've used those words carefully. You can call it a quiet time. You can call it you know, a devotional or spiritual reading, your time with God, whatever you want to call it. The first thing I want to tell you about is the power of the habit. You know, our lives are made up of habits, aren't they? Routines, repeated activities that we do. This is, this is actually how we achieve great things in life, right? Bit by bit, day at a time, building one upon the other. We don't become spiritual giants overnight. You know, we just decided to pray and we became a spiritual giant. That doesn't happen that way. I'm talking about a habit of life that becomes, as one writer has called it, a long obedience in the same direction. God, our Heavenly Father, invites us into His presence. What a privilege! Why wouldn't we want to do that day after day? So I wonder, is that something that you do? Do you really set aside a regular time to read your Bible and to pray, to, to actually experience God? Let me tell you about a mate of mine. His name is Phil. Um, and he's, he had his good buddy Rod standing next to him, and they challenged me something uh, one day. They said, we want you for 60 consecutive days to read your Bible and pray. Uh, here's what you've got to do. You've got to get out a little journal, and you've got to start writing a few notes about what you've understood God is uh, showing you from the Bible each day, and then you need to pray about that every day. And, uh, you know, so I accepted the challenge. And I began with day number one and number two and number three and so on. But if I missed a day, then the counter would reset to zero and I'd have to go again, right? And my friends promised me that when the counter got up to 60, they would take me out for a fancy lunch and we would talk about how God had changed my life. After a week or two, I was, um, I was really starting to enjoy a daily meeting with God. Uh, when I missed a day, and I did miss a day here and there, and you know what, no big deal, no guilt trip, but the counter was back to zero. Um, after about a month of this, I could see that actually the habit was forming. I was starting to enjoy this. And as I was jotting my little notes in my little book, which now had a proper name called Journal, uh, you know, this was becoming more authentic. This was, this was me. And by the time that the counter on my little journal got to number 30, I had actually formed a habit, a powerful habit. The day was not right until we had had this time. My prayers were no longer kind of ceiling bounces. You know those prayers that just feel like they didn't go anywhere? They do, of course, but they just felt that. It didn't even feel like that anymore. It was great. This was the real thing. And you know, when you get to 60 in your journal, you have formed the habit of a lifetime. It's a powerful habit. You won't want to miss time with God. 
because you love it so much. And truly, God has shaped your life. He's changed your life. You have begun to grow in remarkable ways. So I started that practice many, many years ago. I still do the same thing today. And I promise you this, that if you will give yourself to engaging with God in that simple way for 60 consecutive days, you will be changed wonderfully. You will be seeking first God's kingdom and his righteousness. And you'll find that all of the other things you've been anxiously worrying about, well, you know what, they're there anyway. This is how a person would embrace God's rule in their lives such that they live the manifesto that we have before us in the Sermon on the Mount. It's not the only way to do it, but I'm saying that it works for me. I want to encourage you to do that. This is how you could do it. You could seek first God's kingdom on a kind of a day-by-day, hands-on, practical level. And anyone here who wants to take up the 60-day challenge, come and see me when you're finished, and I will take you out for lunch. And we will talk about how God has changed your life. I look forward to that in about, oh, I don't know, two months' time. Let me pray for us. God and Father, thank you that you are our Heavenly Father, that we can trust you completely, that you will never let us down. We may not always understand what you're up to, but we know that your powerful love for us assures us of where you're taking us. Father, when worry does arise for us, will you please help us to turn that into prayer and to trust you for your peace that passes all understanding. This we ask in Jesus' name. Amen.